Amen. All right, if you have a seat and open your Bibles um, to two passages, actually. First uh, Timothy chapter 3 is where we're at. We're going straight through the book of Timothy. But also, if you just go two books to the right in uh, the book of Titus, if you just kind of keep your thumb or finger in chapter 1, which really uh, should just be two pages there, um, that will be, uh, we'll hit that very quickly as well. Uh, also, if you don't have one of these study guides yet, there are probably a couple more in the back um, available, and they're just very helpful to go through some of the more difficult passages uh, to give you some opportunity to study a little bit more, especially like last week. There's some questions for personal study, some a little bit of commentary, some uh, uh, group discussion questions, and then there's a bunch of stuff in the back for your family, uh, should you have some little ones or uh, older little ones that you're pastoring at home. Hopefully it'll be helpful for you. But last week we spent basically time talking about uh, what can go wrong with unqualified leadership in a church when men and women fail to fulfill their roles. And I'm just so hesitant to, to hit some of these passages because they feel like it's very easy to feel um, instructive, which doesn't mean it shouldn't be, or feel like this isn't about me, it's just about pastors and churches, but God saw fit to put this in His Word, and since we think it's important, all Scripture being God-breathed, to preach every word, He wanted us to know these things, and that's why we go through this. And so last week we talked about where women and men fail to fulfill their roles, particularly in the church and leadership. And chapter 3 focuses really on what qualified leadership needs to look like for things to go right. Um, the health of a business, of a family, of a church, of really just about any entity, is deeply connected with the health of its leadership. And I think ultimately that's what Paul's point is here, written to in a letter that is written to a young man leading a fairly large church where a few of its leaders, in particular its elders, have revealed or been revealed as false teaching wolves. And so their leadership is is messed up on a number of levels. And it's likely, I believe, that these men were not qualified as leaders biblically to begin with. But perhaps it's a little more likely that when the men were found disqualified or became disqualified, these wolves, the other men sat silently because they didn't want to be the bad guy to tell the guy that, no, dude, you're no longer qualified and we need to remove you from leadership. I meet pastor upon pastor that have issues with eldership, end up being sin issues where the guy's disqualified and they're scared to do anything about it. They don't want to be the bad guy, they want to be liked, or, or a number of other reasons, and that leads to a situation like you have in Ephesus. And so, Timothy is charged, feels ill-equipped, inexperienced, but he's charged by Paul with cleaning up the mess that was caused by allowing unqualified leadership lead the church. And so he's supposed to kick out the bad leaders, and then, what we see in chapter 3, reestablish godly leadership. And so Paul has to tell him what godly leadership looks like. Now, it's likely that many of us, perhaps all of us, have had a bad experience with bad leadership, in particular maybe even church leadership, um, at some point in our lives. And I, I meet an increasingly more or a growing number of people who have that, have their stories about that bad church, that bad leadership, that bad experience. And these kinds of experiences, some worse than others, But most of them, if not all of them, can cause incredibly deep wounds and long-lasting scars that affect us 
for years. And what I see happening more often than not is, is these what I'll call awful experiences or bad experiences, regardless of knowing the details of the experience, we'll just call it a bad experience, that will begin to govern how we approach any future church leadership. And to avoid being hurt again, we do this with relationships too. We get hurt, and so to avoid being hurt, we make these little promises, these little agreements with ourselves, these little mini covenants, if you will, about what we'll never do again. I'll, I'll never trust another pastor as long as I live because of what so-and-so did. I, I'll never become a member of a church again because of this terrible experience I had. Or I'll never serve again. I'm just going to go and leave and that's it. Or I'll never get too close to anyone because people just leave. Or I'll never give any church a dime because of what they did and the abuse that they did with their finances. We make these little agreements. And we all have done it. And feeling, I think, completely justified in our, in our self-protection, we come into churches, maybe we even stay at churches for years, and for that time we remain skeptical and cynical, refusing to submit to any leader because that word's just dirty to us, though the Bible uses it, and we begin to automatically disqualify any pastor that we happen to meet because he can't possibly meet that standard of perfection that we have in our minds. And if you can't find a biblical reason to not like them or to dismiss the fact that you need to follow them or whatever you, how you want to describe it, we'll just go ahead and withhold respect for some personal flaw that we don't like, a quirk, an age, the fact that they're uneducated or educated, old, young, they have spiky hair or tattoos or whatever. We just, whatever we choose, we'll just say, that's why I don't like this guy. The fact is, order and leadership in the church was not man's ideas, it was God's. The church is supposed to be led, regardless of what your experience has brought you. It is supposed to be led by a group of qualified, godly men who love Jesus. And as Paul went out in the book of Acts to plant churches, he went into all these towns where they didn't know Jesus, he preached Jesus, and he would start churches, Paul and Barnabas would basically appoint elders to lead those churches, pastors. And in Titus 1.5, he tells Titus, a young pastor, he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So I believe, and I think the Bible teaches, that godly, gospel-centered churches can't exist, they can't function, they can't grow they can't be protected without godly leadership. Without question. I don't know anyone who would disagree with that. But they're hard-pressed to find godly leadership, even if they could define it. But churches go bad. This is where I believe churches go bad. When members stop following its leaders. But they're still there. But I think the first thing that goes bad before that is that leaders go bad when they forget that they are first and foremost followers and that of Jesus, submitted to the Lordship of Jesus, submitted to the Scripture and what the Scripture declares about who they are as leaders, whether they're qualified or they're not. And 
We make a point in our membership and in our website and whenever we talk about it to identify Jesus as the head pastor of our church. And some people are like, yeah, that's cute. That's kind of a neat little thing to say. Sounds clever. Ha, ha, ha. We don't have a senior pastor. Jesus is. But I think it's actually quite important to do that. To overtly talk about that. Because the Bible, the Scriptures clearly declare that Jesus is the head of the church. But sometimes in some churches, big and small, that's not very obvious. You begin to see the guy leading. And I'm not talking about the guy that preaches the most, but ultimately not talking about Jesus very much. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the apostle, it says, who plants churches. Jesus is the one who leads and builds churches. Jesus is the one, the Bible says, who rules the church. And ultimately, Jesus is the one in the book of Revelation who closes churches down when they are faithless or fruitless. Jesus is the one that dictates all things, whether churches grow or churches shrink. He is the one who decides these things. Now, human leadership, pastors in the church, are then little more than qualified Christians who are following Jesus and encouraging other people to follow them as they follow Jesus. That's what church leadership is supposed to be out about. So if you have leaders that aren't pointing to Jesus, but are only too often pointing to themselves, you've got a problem. There is a point to the self that has to happen. Paul talked about that when he went to churches. He said, follow my example. If he stopped there, we might have a problem. But he always said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. It all begins and ends and aims toward Jesus. Now, Paul gives a little more specifics. So, in terms of installing elders and making pastors of churches, we don't just install men who say they love Jesus. Even men who say, well, I'm following Jesus. And you've all met people who said probably they follow Jesus, and you go, you don't really look like you're following Jesus. You kind of look like you're the Lord of your own life doing whatever the snarf you want to do. Okay? Now, snarf's a real word. So, today's churches... Often, though, start there, to their credit, like, we want you to love Jesus. Okay, does this guy love Jesus? He looks like he does. He's following Jesus. And that's where it ends. And they go, well, in order for you to be qualified, now that we know you love Jesus, are you a good businessman? And they start installing guys who are good businessmen, good leaders in the secular world, sometimes men who are ultimately qualified because they're very gifted, very talented, uh, guys who are very educated, that, like, we're qualified because you've got these degrees. Or sometimes it's just, you're qualified because you've been here the longest and everyone likes you. And you have a flock of people around you because you're just so nice and everyone gets along. But that's not necessarily someone who's qualified, according to the Bible. And in the spirit of Jesus, who picked what appeared to be qualified men, I should say, who appeared to be unqualified men in the eyes of the world... Paul gives us a a list of qualifications that basically doesn't talk about personality, doesn't talk about skills, doesn't talk about accomplishments or experience or even education. It all talks about character. His qualifications for pastoring, character. Now, it's a list, what I believe, is to evaluate all pastors. So it's important for you to know what's in the Bible because you need to use it as a rubric to measure me and all the other pastors at this church or any other pastor at any other church. But it's also a pretty good list for any Christian to aspire to. So we're going to read in 
First Timothy chapter 3, a couple of verses, and turn over to Titus where he talks about a similar list in the same spirit. So chapter 3, verse 1 says this, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And if you turn a couple books over into Titus, another letter, one of the three, written to a young pastor. This one to Titus. Chapter 1, verse 7, just a couple verses, says very similar list. He says, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be these things, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in the sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So, as, you, as we begin to look at these, and, and it's a very specific list, and it's a weighty list, and it's a lot of things to evaluate any pastor by. At Damascus Road, we see no difference between the use of elder, overseer, bishop, or pastor. We believe that the terms are used interchangeably in Scripture to describe church leaders and what they do and who they are. So in our church, our elders are pastors and our pastors are elders. There is no difference. There's no board of elders and then the pastors or, or vice versa. Okay? So churches, though, are notorious for creating all kinds of interesting systems that I don't necessarily think are sinful, but they're not always biblical. And they create all kinds of new titles, like your board elders and your lay elders, or you're the elder of uh, um, the music minister, or you're the uh, director of spiritual formation, or you are the coordinator for creative sensory architecture. I mean, there's freaky stuff, okay? All kinds of weird... And I don't care what kind of weirdness you want to declare yourself, but oftentimes the churches with the weird titles don't actually have any biblical ones. And so... Paul makes it clear that there's three categories of people in the church. And this is what we believe. Philippians 1.1 says, as Paul is writing with Timothy, says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, this church, with the overseers and the deacons. So what we would declare that is you've got your members, and there are members officially, and then there are people who are in the church that are believers and unbelievers. But there's that group, what he would describe as saints, he's writing to the believers, because the only ones that are going to listen anyway. But there are unbelievers here. Then you have the overseers and the deacons. That's it. Any other titles you can have, fine, but you better have those. Now, Paul begins, or this section of Scripture, and next week is deacons, we're focusing on the idea of overseer. He says, anyone who aspires to be an overseer or an elder or a pastor, same thing. Anyone desires to be a pastor or literally, literally to stretch one's hand out to obtain this, to pursue this, that's a good thing. 
They desire a good thing to want to lead. It's a good thing for men to want to lead. It's fantastic. I remember many moons ago, and this is many moons ago, like 15 plus years ago, sitting with a little known pastor named Mark Driscoll, who had started a little church that was nothing at the time, sitting in my truck because Dick's driving was doing discounted burgers, I think, for some anniversary. So we decided to go because we were having a Bible study at his house. And he was talking about how you want to plant churches and all this crazy stuff. And I'm like, dude, you are nuts, okay? And I was sitting there. I said, you know, as I'm studying to be a teacher in high school, I said, I feel like maybe I should pastor, but I don't really know where that feeling is going to come from. And in his very bold and plain way, said, well, that's not coming from Satan. Okay, good point. And that's probably true. I had a desire. I don't really know what it was all about, but I did have this desire. It took 15 plus years or so for that ever to come to fruition. But I had this desire. But as we see Paul continue to write, he sees that desire and willingness are not enough to be a pastor. Just because someone desires doesn't mean they're actually called to be a pastor. And I've met people like this. I've had to assess people like this. They had all kinds of desires. I cried about it. Blah, blah, blah. It's fine. But their life's a mess. And it doesn't nearly meet the qualifications that Paul lists in Scripture. And so, what we see is that just because, or once I guess someone has an inner desire, has to start with that. It can't be, well, I, you know, my dad was a pastor, so I guess I'm supposed to be a pastor. It does have to be an innate inner desire. But the validity of that desire, or of that call, I think, must be measured according to Scripture. And many men feel called to the ministry, and when they do, a lot of guys go into seminary, I think seminary is fantastic. I hopefully will go someday when I actually have any money and extra time to do that. I, I do desire it. It's a good thing. And they'll go into seminaries, though, and they'll study, 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 and they'll become ordained. And the thing about being ordained is that it's really, it's a, I don't want to say it's a bad thing, ultimately, but it's not necessarily a biblical thing that you are required to do. Ordination is a, is, a, is a man-made concept, but it's a good concept intended to measure men, to make sure they're qualified. But, heck, you can get ordained online at the Universal, what is it, the Universal Life Church, www.monastery.org. There you go. Okay? And I know pastors have done, pastors, I have a teacher in the local high school who desired to do that. He was out of spite because he just was anti-everything religious and Christian. He said, oh, I only do gay marriages. That was his big, you know, whether he wanted to do it or not. But he could. He could, in some sense. Ordination, just because someone's ordained, I should say, doesn't make them qualified. Okay? Doesn't make them qualified. Maybe they are. Maybe they're not. I'm not ordained. There you go. There's the big secret. I'm not ordained. Well, how I got ordained, first of all, our church is recognized, recognized as a religious organization by the state and by the um, uh, federal government, means that we can ordain. So when I had to go to the IRS to say, either withhold my Social Security or not, they said, well, prove you're ordained. Okay, print a certificate, I'm ordained. Damascus Road Church, because legally that's how it happens. That's how you get ordained. So we ordain our pastors. They have the legal right to marry and bury and all those types of things, and they're held accountable for those type of things. There's ordination for you. Now, again, ordination is a good thing, but it's not just because someone's ordained that they are qualified. Now, in order for a man to be qualified, according to the Scripture, it says that you must exhibit the highest of Christian character in his relationship with God, with his family, 
with himself and with others who are not in the church. Now, it means that we are to select men whose lives are worthy of imitation. That's what Hebrews 13.7 says. It says, remember your leaders. The ones who, who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So that's the standard. So when all is said and done, the ultimate qualifier for us in our church, the ultimate, not the only, is that we, I, you, have to be confident that if I die, my bride could follow this man, and even now, my family could follow this man. My sons can see an example of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a husband, what it means to be a dad, if they follow this man. My daughter can see what it means for uh, her to find a man of character, a man of godliness, a man who loves Jesus. You can see that. And if that isn't the case, he's not qualified. If we can't follow him in those ways, he is not qualified. And that's why I think Paul ultimately describes all these things. And we're talking about character, not style. Okay? So there are different stylistic things. We say, like, you know, son, don't have your hair like him, but in terms of character, fantastic. Follow him. Okay? We're not talking about style, how they talk, how they look. We're talking about character. And you need to know somebody in order to know their character. Now, I have had to told, tell people, and it's not enjoyable, it is one of the responsibilities of my role as the lead pastor, which doesn't mean I have any more authority, it just describes my particular role in this plurality of equals, I've had to tell people that they're not qualified. I say, I, we have come to that conclusion, I'm usually the mouthpiece for that. And that's hard to hear for anybody. That's incredibly hard to hear. Why? Because ultimately, I'm telling that individual, whether I'm not saying it, but what they're hearing is that I don't want my family, son, daughter, bride, to follow you in some aspects of your life. I'm not confident in that. That's hard not to take personally. Very hard not to take personally. And I understand that. And it's almost impossible to communicate that. That's why we always start the eldership process, which is about a year long, by saying, you are not guaranteed eldership. This is what we see and we hope for, but it's not a guarantee. And so, we believe that God equips those He calls. And if you were called to the office of eldership, God's going to give you what it takes to meet the standard that he has set out. But it's hard to have a conversation with someone to tell them that they're qualified or not qualified because ultimately when you do, you have a finger, fingers pointing back at you at all your flaws. Well, you this. Well, you that. And I've had those conversations. And the truth is, we're not trying to find the perfect man or perfect leader with particular personalities or skills. What we're trying to do, we may find actually the guy that's less skilled, less gifted, who's got more character, who should be a pastor more than the other guy. But the reality is, we know that at best, best case scenario, we're going to find the qualified, imperfect men. There are only imperfect men to choose from. Do we understand that? They are all imperfect in some way. And so we find those who are qualified imperfect. Not the best of the imperfect, the qualified of the imperfect. Now, the most important relationship in finding these qualified men, Paul's, and I'm going to kind of categorize it, is his relationship with God. Which kind of goes without saying, but I'll say it because God does. It is, if his relationship with God 
is not healthy. I'm not going to give you a checklist of what makes a healthy relationship with God. But if his relationship is not healthy, then all other relationships will, sh- will suffer. He has to be a Christian, not just in name. He has to live it out. He has to love Jesus. And it has to be obvious. He has to obey God's Word. That's what governs his life. That's how he makes decisions. He has to be a man of prayer, a man who serves the church, a man who shares his faith, a man who preaches to those that he loves in particular. Not a man who's spiritually perfect, but definitely a man who is spiritually disciplined. And spiritual discipline looks different for different people. My faith may look different. We both love Jesus, but how that lived out in your life, you might be the guy that loves to go to the prayer meetings and you sit there and you can pray for three hours straight and never shut up. That might be you. That's not me. Okay? You might be the person that takes a verse and it's like you sit on one verse and you might be the person that reads an entire book of the Bible in one sitting. Fantastic. Whatever your spiritual disciplines, they're yours. But they're worked out in some way. You work them out the way you want, but they are worked out. That is what I'm talking about saying he needs to be a man of faith. And so, as he lists down the relationship with God, here are the things he, he hits. One is that, and this is kind of weird, but he's a man. That's to begin with. He desires a noble task. The husband of one wife. Okay, We're talking about men. We talked about this last week a little bit. He's a man, so that should be obvious in terms of the qualifications. Maybe some need to be tested today, but typically, he's a man. Okay, You're a man, male, done. Next qualification. Doesn't meet that, you ain't qualified. Number two, Titus and Timothy, both letters start off with this, says they must be a man who is above reproach. And this has been a woefully abused, I think, statement to kind of almost say, well, they have to be perfect. Now, above reproach, or the word for reproach, means blameless or, or not to be called into account. Now, if we define that word to mean completely blameless, or I think as English dictionaries indicate, above criticism, then we could understand above reproach to mean that your behavior... This guy's behavior is so godly, so amazing, so perfect to be free of accusation from anybody in or outside the church. And that's where some people are like, man, how can anyone hit that standard of perfection? They can't. And the thing about it is if anyone was above reproach, I think we could include Jesus being above reproach. That would be the one guy that I'd say, definitely, he's above reproach, whatever he was, he was that, he was sinless. So he was probably above reproach. But strangely, in the Gospels, he doesn't appear, Jesus, overly concerned with being above reproach or above accusation. Because the Pharisees and the Sadducees and others were always accusing him of stuff. He was accused of being a drunk. He was accused of being a glutton. He was accused of treason. He was accused of all kinds of other things. And I don't think we're talking about just any accusation. Paul treats... uh, accusations against elders in in chapter 5, there are lots of accusations that should be listened to, but there's probably a lot more that should be ignored because they're baseless and they're motivated by sin. So being qualified doesn't mean that I or any of the pastors are above any accusation from anyone because I've gotten accused by things without question. It means you measure the accusation and where it's coming from. But it also means... It's not to say that I shouldn't ever be challenged on things. 
Because sometimes pastors get into a place where like, well, I'm above reproach. It means what I say goes. I'm actually above being approached at all. And that's not the case either. You should be able to challenge me, ask me about what my life does. Why did I do what I do? Why do I live the way? Ask. Ask. Make sure in the, you measure the spirit in which you're asking. But I'm not above, and our pastor's not above being challenged in that way. And I think we should be probably more often. But here's a little news flash for everybody, if you didn't know. And that is that being a pastor, being a qualified elder, according to Scripture, does not stop me from making bad decisions. Some stupid decisions. Some unwise decisions. Even in leading the church. Okay? I can make a wrong decision. To lease this building could have been a wrong decision. Doesn't look like it so far. But it could have been. The reality is, I can make bad decisions. I can even make, as a man, sinful decisions. Sin, decisions that disqualify me. Now, the stupid decisions, the unwise ones, the ones that you just don't like, maybe, oh, I don't know if we should do that, running Friday night concerts on Fridays, I don't know, okay? Those still have to be respected. Those still have to be respected. The sinful decisions I make, depending on what they are, some of those must be confessed. In other words, I should be confessing sin and repenting of sin if that's the case. And some of those confessions will mean I should be removed. If I am caught in sin, you should remove me. Shame on you if you don't. Okay? I may not want to be removed at the time, because I've seen that happen with pastors. But if I am disqualified, your elders better kick me out. Better put me under church discipline. Perish the thought by God's grace that it doesn't happen. But the reality is that it certainly can. Now, Scripture. Scripture. Not personal opinion. Not personal angst. Not personal experience. Scripture qualifies a man, authorizes a man, and guides a man. And Scripture also disqualifies a man and judges a man and punishes him. That's the measure. Not whether Sam's charismatic and loud and bowls you over, and not whether um, you know we even have uh, disagreements. It should be Scripture. The other thing Paul says about his relationship with God is that he's not a new convert and he's able to teach. Not a new convert is important. He must be mature in the faith, and that's difficult to measure sometimes. But Paul warns that new believers or young leaders are not going to be able to handle the weight of leadership. And the interesting thing is, he says specifically what can happen. They can be puffed up with conceit. And it's the same Greek word that's used um, in chapter 6, I think verse 4, where he talks about being puffed up like a cloud. Puffed up uh, like a guy with his, almost his head in the clouds. Like thinking about things that clearly he shouldn't be thinking now, Paul uses that phrase to describe what happened to the false teachers. And these were false teachers, as we saw in chapter 1, who were pursuing positions of leadership for the wrong reasons. They wanted to be teachers of the law, right? They wanted to be teachers, have position, respect, and honor. They care less about God's law and the truth. And what happens to young leaders is they can often become arrogant. Why? Because people start calling them pastor. People start following them. People start imitating them. Like, wow, i got people following me now. Very quickly, like, now that i got a following, I feel like doing this. You see it all the time. 
They stop being submitted to Jesus and they start being their own Lord a lot of times. They become arrogant. And what happens ultimately is the new converts will, he says, fall into the snare. They will fall into condemnation. And what happens is they ultimately, I think, become wolves. Not intending to, but they become wolves that are led or trying to lead with the wrong motivations. They are doing things not to the glory of God, but for the glory of themselves and what they can get from it. They also must be able to teach. They have to be Bible-thumping, Bible-loving teachers of God's Word. And Titus says they must hold firm to the trustworthy Word as taught. So this isn't a time for, now I'm a pastor, I just had a revelation of some new theology that we missed in the history of the church and start going off some different direction. It's what was taught by the apostles and the disciples. Biblical, gospel-centered truth, but it's been taught for thousands upon thousands of years. They must be men who can handle the Word of God. Men who can feed the flock and protect the flock. Men who can kill the wolves with Scripture, not just bowling them over because they're loud, with Scripture, and men who can feed and lead the uh, sheep to clean water. Now, this is a qualification unique to elders. You see, he talks about deacons later, who is a very service-oriented uh, position. It's not a qualification for deacon. It's not a qualification for a member. It is a qualification for an elder. But that doesn't mean that every elder gets the gift of preaching. There are many men who are elders who don't have the gift of preaching. Okay, who are pastors and don't have. There are some who do, who until you put them up stage, like one we know, he's about seven feet tall, say, dude, I think you can preach. I don't want to. think you have to get to preaching. No, and he goes up and you're like, dang, that was pretty good. I think I can preach. Okay? That's what happens. Not every elder, just because you're qualified, is a gifted preacher. And not every elder is going to be able to debate every theological position and nuance that exists. I've had guys come in and be like, so, are you young earth or old earth? Okay. Are you this? Are you that? Are you this position, that position? Now, certainly, we need to have a handle on all those things, but I don't expect every elder to know and be prepared for every possible theological position out there. There are the essentials that without question, they need to know and be able to fight for and able to know when false teachers come in. But I'm more concerned with someone, A, not necessarily being a preacher or a debater, but a capable teacher and a learner in particular. A man who will study. A man who will know his word. A man when that young earth, old earth guy comes in, he's studying to find out an answer to that question, not because he can give an answer, but so that he has firm understanding of what his faith is and what the Bible says about a particular subject. Now, that means that they're in process. So we don't wait for a guy to have his theological degrees or to have some educational prowess. We allow him to learn as long as he has some solid biblical truth. Relationship to God, and then relationship to family. We evaluate as we measure your pastors, their family. And it's brutal. I'm telling you, it's brutal. I get in their faces, I ask them hard questions, I ask them about everything, from how they treat their wife, what their sex life looks like, their finances, everything there is to know about this guy. We want to know everything. All the cards on the table. And so a guy that even submits himself to that process, it's unusual for anyone to want to submit themselves to something like that. Because you're willing to basically say, I'm going to share my entire life with you. Now, a man's relationship with his bride and his children and his home often disqualify 
or qualify him. And how a man leads his own first church will dictate how he leads the church. You should watch the marriages and the families and the parenting and the households of all your elders. You should watch how we interact. You should watch how I interact with my bride. Now, the first thing that I think is important after being above reproach that Paul hits, he says, the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. Now, I think the most important thing for any pastor is the faithfulness to his bride. It is the faithfulness to his bride that's number one, above faithfulness to his kids, above faithfulness to his job, above faithfulness to his church. It is the faithfulness to his bride. And more often than not, that's the most common disqualifier for a man who wants to be a pastor. When we assess guys at Acts 29, yes, we ask some questions about theology. That's pretty much done through a lot of testing and processes. Yes, he's got some crazy strategy of how he wants to reach the lost. That's fantastic. I go in those means. Three-hour assessments. I'm asking about his bride. And his bride's there. And I watch her as he answers. And then I say, okay, let me ask you. Do you love this man? Yes, I love this man. Would you follow this man? Yes, I follow this man. I start asking more and more questions. And, well, what do you think about leading a church plant with him? Because you are. It's coming to your life. You're going to make sacrifices. And he'll always want to go, well, and start talking. I said, shut up. I'll be really mean about it, too. Say, you don't speak. Let me hear. And doggone it, five times out of ten, she starts crying. because She didn't want nothing to do with it. You ask them about their communication. All right, I want you both to give me a number. Tell me about your communication. Don't tell each other. Don't look at each other. Don't even think about each other. Okay? You give me a number between one and ten. I want you to say it at the exact same time. Okay? One, two, three. Nine, two. <laughs> Quite frankly, disqualified immediately in my mind. Disqualified immediately. Because his marriage is most important. The faithfulness of his bride is most important. His wife should look more beautiful. She should be more protected, more educated, if you will, because he is shepherding her and teaching her. He must be faithful to his bride first and foremost. All the elders in our church, we take it a priority. The other day, we, we send letters occasionally just to people in the congregation and be like, you know, letters of encouragement. I threw down letters one time. I said, write one to your bride. It's on a Damascus Road card. It was kind of cheesy, but you know. But the spirit of it was, your bride is number one. We sit down at our elders' meetings. We talk about, tell me about your marriage. How are things? We don't let them lie. Number one. Then he also says, he must be not only a successful husband. Let me, let me just stop real quick, and this is going to embarrass my bride, but that's okay. You need to understand I'm not just BSing you when I say this. I love my bride more than any person in this world. More than my kids. Way more than you. And the day, because we got close about a, uh, nine months ago, the day where this begins to hinder to the point of irreparable harm leading a church, I will quit, I will quit, I will quit. And the elders better make me quit. I love my bride more than anything in this planet. Under Jesus. I love Jesus a lot more than her. Okay, And all your elders, I think, would say the exact same thing. I pray, I know they would say the same thing. And you should see that. You should see that. What's that mean? You go on dates every Friday? No. No, it doesn't mean that. Okay? 
They're in Monday. <laughs> successful husband and successful manager. Manage your household well. The second most important thing, you must pastor his home at all times well, meaning excellently. The word actually, I think it's kalos. I probably said it wrong. The word actually can also be translated beautifully, which for me is indication of it's visible. You can see it. Managing his household isn't necessarily, you know, oh, the checklist, I can prove it to you. It should be observable. We should all be able to see it. It is well, it is excellent, but in such a way that it's obvious. And a man, a man kind of managing his household without question doesn't just the man, it takes a bride to accomplish this. Okay? I don't make any decisions without my bride. This, I think it's the same way as pastors with their congregation. It doesn't mean, quite frankly, that the pastors ask you permission for every decision they make. But it does mean we are constantly in conversation. We are not making decisions where you're like, whoa, what are we doing? We're moving to Everett? Where'd this come from? Same as with my wife, Kaylin. I don't make any decisions without her input. Major decisions, even some of the minor ones. I want relationship. I want understanding. I want to move forward together. But I make the decisions. I manage the household. I am responsible. Even if I've delegated things. What's a well-managed household? It includes a lot of things. It's fairly subjective. I would say it includes finances, resources, time, a lot of different things. To be able to say, look, follow this guy. Manage your house like him. So when someone says, I got financial, I'm just so screwed up financially, can you tell? I may not be able to, be able to take them through the, the five steps to have a perfect finances, but I can't say, well, do what I do. This is how I do it. Follow my example. May work for you, may not. But it must be, just as his life is, a model home for everyone else. Does that have to be perfect? No. My home looks different than Mark's, looks different than Jim's. Our homes look different, but there's one consistency through them. They're well managed. They're well managed. Even if they're managed a little bit differently. And lastly, a successful father, husband, manager, father, says has obedient children, ruling them with all dignity. Part of that management of a man's home, if God blesses him, is with kids. And I actually, someone asked me recently whether we would install a pastor who had never been married. Um, and biblically, I don't know if I could say, nope, never, because there are men that you know are gifted with celibacy and they're godly men and awesome men. For me, because I've been married and am married, it's difficult to know or to see how a man can really understand shepherding a bride without having a bride. Because that really showed me how selfish I was and am. And then with parenting, it was like the next level of suffering, I mean of enjoyment, where, where you realize ultimately how selfish you are. Right? And so if a man has kids, that tells a lot. I've learned more about God and my relationship with Him through my kids than I probably even had through my marriage. Where the kids are rebellious and disobedient, like, why are you doing... Okay, God, now I know how you feel. Right? You learn about grace and mercy and justice through your kids. And there is much to be said as a, as a man parents his home. As he exercises authority, he should do it with wisdom. 
He should do it with love. He should do it with evangelism, where he's confessional dad, speaking about the gospel constantly. And his children should be well-disciplined believers. Not saying that he can control their salvation. But without question, it doesn't mean that, that a kid's never going to rebel, never going to sin. My kids have rebelled. My kids have sinned. But it does mean that dad shepherds them when they do. Okay? Now, a man's marriage, a man's household, and a man's parenting are some of the primary things that disqualify a man or qualify him to lead a church. Many have a relationship with self. I'm going to go very quickly through these because there's a combination between Titus and Timothy, and I'm just going to go through them, and if I spent too much time, it would be crazy. But his relationship, his personal behavior, his, his, his own personal identity can qualify him or disqualify him, and he gives a pretty extensive lift, Paul does, that probably are open to interpretation a little bit. I understand that, but I think the spirit of each of these is pretty clear. That your pastor and all pastors should be temperate, the person should be mentally and emotionally stable. Duh. But, you know, quite frankly, it's not always the case. They should be self-controlled. That can apply to a lot of things. But it's pretty obvious when someone's out of control. Is the guy quick-tempered or is he measured? When stress happens. Because there's a lot of stress as a pastor. You know what hits the fan constantly? And if you got a guy that's unstable or lacks control, he can make a mistake. Does he have sound decision-making? Sober-minded. I always take this to believe, can he articulate his mind and, and, and what he believes clearly? Communicate his thoughts clearly? So a lot of guys that sit as we're dialoguing, you're like, I just can't, I don't know. That. That's fine, that's the exception, not the rule is the rule that he's clearly thinking. He's not constantly governed by his emotions. He's sober-minded, clear-minded, disciplined in that way. Holy. Our elders are holy. I mean, that's, that's kind of a, a difficult one. But I, again, holiness for me is a, is a process of sanctification. I am, yes, justified by the grace of Jesus, by the work that Jesus did, but He's in the process of shaping me, a process I participate in, and the Holy Spirit empowers and, and shows me my idols constantly. So for me, holiness and the pursuit of holiness is the idea of constantly confessing, constantly repenting. Is the person resisting sin? Step one. And pursuing God and God's glory in all things. Because we can always pursue God's glory more in all things. Whether we eat or drink, Paul says. Discipline. Does a man... Uh, live an ordered life, ordered emotionally, ordered physically. If I get to be like 650 pounds, you better say something way before then. Because the fact is, if that's the case, I am not ordered physically. Okay? Ordered emotionally, ordered spiritually. And lots of people have lots of excuses as to why they can't lead a disciplined life. I have a certain personality. I was never taught this. Then you are not qualified. Period. Especially if you're taught and you still can't discipline, then you're just not. I guess that's just the way you do things. God's man has to be disciplined. Not to the point where he's a stuffy, no fun, you know, militant leader. But without question, there's order to his life. Not given to drunkenness. Yes, he should not be 
addicted to wine, beer, or anything. He should be free of addictions. Okay? Doesn't mean he never drinks, although there are pastors and churches who make that decision because I'm going to prove I'm not given to drunkenness by abstaining. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. If that's how you best glorify God, then you glorify God. That's not how we do at our church. We basically, uh, there, are, there are certainly men in our leadership that drink and men who do not. But without question, we are free of addictions. We are free of addictions and we must be free of addictions. Not a lover of money, greedy, is the man financially content? Okay? Is he financially responsible? Is he financially upright? How are his finances? With our leaders, Randy Loveless is the next candidate. We will look at all his finances. We'll say, give us a financial disclosure of everything. Not because we want to see how much money he makes, or so on and so forth, but are you a wise steward of your money? How much debt do you have? And just because someone has debt doesn't mean they're disqualified. You tell me how you're dealing with that debt. How you got into that debt. Tithing. Do you tithe? Not how much do you tithe. Do you tithe, leader? When we were going to ask people to make commitments for financial, the first thing I asked Chris to do as our treasurer is give me all of the elders' tithing records. Print them up and we're going to share them at the elders' meeting. So I passed them out. Here you go. Here's what everyone's given. And by God's grace, none of us were ashamed. But then I said, I think we should print these for the church. And we dialogued what that would communicate and why. But the point of doing that was say, we're open book. And you should be able to ask us about our finances, even how much we give. Not saying we should ask that of every member, every deacon, but of elders. You should know what they spend and where they spend it. I believe that. Because I have nothing to hide. And I don't believe any of our men have anything to hide either. Even if they're struggling, they'll be honest. Last is relationship to others. Relationship to God, relationship to the family, relationship to self, others. The fact is a man must have relationship with others outside of the church. Our faith is not just worked out in our families, not just in our church, not even just individually. It's supposed to be worked out with others, to others, And so the question is, is your pastor missional? Is he engaging with the world? Or is he hiding out and only hanging out with Christians? I'd be quite frank, that's the one thing I hated about not working at the school anymore. Because I felt like I only spent time with Christians. No offense. Okay? But it got irritating. Because I love engaging. It was a natural place to do it. And my time gets little and little. So now most of my ministry takes place with non-Christians in my own neighborhood, which is maybe the way it should be. But without question, he says, a man should be upright and respectable. Is this man worthy of following, imitating, even for the non-believers? Is he hospitable? Do, does this man have a love for strangers, especially those who can't give him anything? Does he have people into his home? Does he bless them? Is he hospitable in that way? When you go to his house, is he hospitable? Not quick-tempered or violent. Does he react calmly or coolly? Is he punching people in the throat and breaking them down? Or is he listening? Is he prideful or is he humble? Time can measure that. Is he gentle and a lover of good? Is he gracious to people? 
Is he forgiving when people fail, especially people who are underneath him? Or is he brutal, bull him over, militant, you screwed up, what have you done? Or what about when people criticize him? I used to be notorious for flame-throwing emails. Okay? Criticism comes in the World Wide Web all the time. Someone asks us a question. So, you guys played poker? You know, just flame them. I'd flame them up real quick. I'm going to make you feel like you are nothing, right? Critics to coaches, forget that. Critics to dead people, flame them. Terrible. Okay? Terrible. I had to confess it. I had to repent of it because I was not being gentle. I was being contentious, which the next one says not contentious. Picking fights. Peaceable. You're supposed to be not quarrelsome. You're supposed to seek for unity until the gospel's compromised. We should seek for unity with other churches until the gospel's compromised. Then we go, we're on different teams. And lastly, a good reputation with others. I know a pastor who had a terrible reputation with being one of those parents in Little League. Found out about it from other people who were not going to his church or others. Like, man, this guy, I hear he's a pastor of a church. I'm like, oh, fantastic. Okay? You'd be surprised what the reputation is for Christians in those kind of contexts. Maybe you wouldn't be surprised. Our reputation should be good, solid. should have people that respect and want to be with us. So choosing elders, you can see why the utmost care, caution, prayer, and assessment has to be taken to assure that only qualified and competent men are appointed to lead the church. He says in 1 Timothy 5, don't be hasty laying on hands. Don't be hasty installing elders. You're going to regret it because you're going to find some sin. And then they're in eldership indefinitely. And most likely, if you put unqualified men in eldership, you're going to be really slow to disqualify men and remove them. The health and effectiveness of any church is going to be determined by the spiritual maturity of its elders and their commitment to install good shepherds and not install just nice guys, wise guys, educated guys, gifted guys who may not be qualified. And the health will also be determined if you're willing to remove those elders when they reveal themselves as disqualified. And you should know and ask how accountability in our church works. I got that question that used to get a lot, not so much anymore, which means you're either developing trust or you're just not asking enough questions. Like, how are you guys accountable? You just one little church off by yourself? Sam, can you just do what you want? Like, you're the lead guy, so you can say, hey, we're going this way. Better hang on. What? You don't agree? You're out of here. We're moving you. That's not how it works. With plurality of eldership and submission to one another, including me. I have no more power just because I get paid and someone else does not. So they can fire me and should fire me should I be found disqualified. They can disagree with me. They can send the church in a different direction. We will be unified in our decision, but it may not be the decision I wanted to begin with. We are accountable to one another. We have signed a covenant. It's available on roadlife.org for those who want to see it. Lay it out there. It's what we signed. We spent three to four hours discussing it question by question. Covenanting one another. And it goes from the very first and most important thing is loving my bride. Actually, I believe it's loving Jesus, loving my bride, loving my children. And then the church is like down here somewhere. As a commitment that we've signed. Where we say, if you're not doing these things, we agree you should be removed. 
Then we covenant with local churches. Why? Because we want accountability. We want protection. We're covenanted with the Seed Church, another Acts 20 church, the Journey Church, Grace Community Church in Linwood, uh, Oikos up in Bellingham. We've all signed a covenant that basically says if Sam freaks out, the elders can ask for another elder from another church to come in and speak truth and rebuke who needs to be rebuked. Or if anyone else does. Why? Because we want protection. We want a covenant protection and accountability. And we also have the Acts 29 network with Scott Thomas and Mark and others who will come in and say, you're off track. But we have agreed covenants because we want accountability. We don't want autonomy. Because I believe autonomy without accountability becomes Ephesus 2.0. We've got bad leaders making bad decisions, destroying a church and dividing it. And while we should... We shouldn't take passages like 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 as weapons to like, let me just show how all these churches are messed up and these pastors are screwed up. You should use it to evaluate us and evaluate the leaders. And I think it's a good model for yourself in your own home. But it's a reminder that James says that not many people should be pastors and leaders and teachers. Because you are judged with a greater strictness. And these men are. They are judged with a greater strictness. I think it's funny that, uh, in speaking of reputation with others, I filled out a police uh, department application because I volunteered to be a chaplain for the city. It's a volunteer position, and they, but they make you go through the whole test. Okay, it's a packet. It's huge. Like, seriously? I felt kind of dumb because, like, you ever do drugs? No. Like, all this stuff, like, they probably think I'm lying. I offered to do the polygraph, but they didn't want to do it. But it's like this huge thing, right? And one of the sections is... Give the names, addresses, and phone numbers of your four closest neighbors. You know why? Because your neighbors know real quick what kind of person you are. This is for police officers. I told uh, Randy first service, like, that might be a good thing to do for pastors. To the four neighbors. And don't be going and telling them anything. So I'm going to, hey, this guy next door is thinking of being a pastor. So what do you think about that? Can you imagine? Dude, I hear that guy screaming at his wife, like, all the time. Really? What else do you know? I mean, but if we're serious about it, then that should be pretty obvious. We should be living it whether we're at home or here. So we need to measure our pastors and evaluate them carefully. Because there are to be examples of what it means to be a Christian, a man, a husband, and a father in our church. We should be able to point to them and say, follow that. And that's a huge weight to carry. Almost too much. Almost too much, to be quite frank. No, it is too much. But if we use this list too legalistically, people will read it, like you and, and me, and we'll go, well, gosh, it'll discourage everyone from ever wanting to be a leader. Forget that. I have to send an example on these 20-some-odd things. But if we use it too liberally, we can wrongfully encourage anyone to be a leader because their third grade teacher told them, well, you're, you're a leader, which really meant you're the most irritating, loud kid in the class. And she's using that as some ploy to shut you up, you know. But, oh, yeah, you're a leader. Not everyone's a leader just because you're gifted, educated, whatever. We'd be wise to remember that it's Jesus who calls and equips leaders, and it's Jesus, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, which the elders read all the time, He is the one who makes us sufficient and competent to be ministers and nothing else. Not any world organization, national organization, not any experience. Jesus. And by God's grace, He doesn't judge like we do. 
according to appearances, because by all appearances, the crew that Jesus put together was pretty unqualified, seemed like, according to world standards. And it's interesting, I'm always reminded by when Samuel was told to go pick another king, because Saul was, you know, had lost or, or God had ripped away uh, because of his sin, the role of king. And he goes and he's, he goes to the family of Jesse, and, and Jesse's just like, you know, he's got all these these older boys and they're studs, and Samuel's like, dude, that must be that guy. That's the guy you want, because Saul was a stud. Taller than everybody, just strapping, you know, good-looking guy. Couldn't be this, you know, young shepherd. And he said in, I think it's 1 Samuel 16, he sees one of uh, David's brothers, and Samuel's like, surely, this is the Lord's anointed. This has got to be him. And God says, But the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We have to be careful about appearances and go with biblical qualifications and character. But God uses the foolish things and the weak men of this world to ultimately make us boast in Him. And even when men are found qualified... As I said, it doesn't mean they're perfect, and it doesn't mean that they're you know, easy to follow because they look so studly or they sound so studly, like, oh yeah, that guy's definitely a leader. I believe the sheep trust the shepherd. The sheep trust their pastors, not because they fill out checklists and assessments and, and those types of things, but because they get to know him. And they know his heart, and they know his voice because they know him. And if you do that with myself and with Jim and with Chris and with Mark and with Aaron and Randy, should he be the next pastor in our church, here's what you'll find. You will find a high school English teacher. You will find a PUD lineman. You will find a financial advisor, a guy in marketing, an engineer, and an architect who, like Paul, have absolutely no confidence in themselves and every confidence in the cross. And as Paul said, I will boast more gladly about our weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ than I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. These are the bare minimums for anyone who would aspire to be a pastor in a church. And I always think it's interesting, and we'll close with what's not there. A pastor doesn't have to have a special degree. It might be recommended, but it's certainly not required. A pastor does not have to read every John Piper book that has been written, contrary to popular opinion. A pastor does not have to have a tattoo, although if you do, it's you know a bonus. A pastor does not have to be a particular age. A pastor does not have to have years of experience, although it certainly doesn't hurt. A pastor does not have to have t-shirts with squiggly marks on them, making it look all artsy-fartsy. A pastor does not have to memorize the book of Proverbs and be able to spout off wisdom constantly every minute. And a pastor does not even have to be some amazing Preacher that everyone podcasts. A pastor 
is simply a man found biblically qualified by other biblically qualified men who love the sheep that God has placed in this flock. I speak about this church. And I know that for me or any other pastor, for some of your negative experiences to say, I love this church, I love you and the people here, maybe rubs you the wrong way because you've heard other pastors say that before. But I can only speak for what I truly feel. And we'll never install a man who doesn't have a love like that for this church. And just as I think there are sheep who will someday, who are not now yet part of this flock, and they'll be part of this flock, I believe that there are other shepherds who will need to be there to help. And there are men and women who are called to lead ministries, and there are men who are called to be husbands and fathers, and women who are called to be moms and wives. But there are men in here, and in first service, and maybe some that aren't even at our church yet. There are men called to be elders or pastors for Damascus Road. They're here. I believe that. One might be you. Or perhaps you're going to be one of the elders or pastors of one of the churches we plant. But becoming a leader and being that leader begins, begins, begins at these tables. It begins at the cross where we confess, quite frankly, that we have nothing to offer but will willingly serve. And some of us need to confess that we have tried to lead without God at all. Tried to lead our families without God. Tried to lead churches maybe in the past or even present ministries without God and without Christ by your own strength. Ain't going to happen. Confess it. And some of you are leaders who should be stepping up, but instead you don't want anything to do with leading because it freaks you out. It's scary. I know! Scary as heck. But some of you have been called to lead. And you need to step into it and live it out. And others, I think your confession as you come to the table today is that you have mistrusted leadership from your bad experience and it's time to let that go. It's time to confess that Jesus is much bigger than that. The church is not to blame. And it's time to move on. Just like I had to with Lost. Okay? It's time to move on. Confess it as sin and live in what God has called you to do, whether that be to lead or to follow. And I pray that our church will be protected from the failure of disqualified leaders and that we'll have the strength to remove those, even if it's myself, when they fail. Let's pray. Father God, we give You glory for Your true leadership. Jesus, You are the pastor of our church. You are the shepherd of our hearts and our souls. And You lead and guide us, protecting us from wolves and leading us to clean, pure water of Your Word. I pray for all of the men in here in particular, Father, that You will make them pastors of their homes first and foremost. That You will help them see these lists that, that You give, Father, through the words of Paul as something to aspire to in their own home as they pastor their bride or their future bride and their family and their children and their future children. 
And for those men, Father, you have called to actually lead and take a step beyond that. I pray you will strengthen them, empower them, give them courage. And you will help the leaders of the church to identify and to encourage them to lead. Protect our leaders, Father. Protect the leaders of this church, the pastors of the homes represented in this church. And may ultimately you be glorified as we submit ourselves to your word and to your lordship. In the blood of your Son we pray. Amen.